0: Sign up today at butcherbox.com etm. So you're casually sitting on the couch one day when your future spouse comes up to you and says, you know, I think we should have that conversation about a prenup. You feel your heart start racing. You have sweat beads start dripping down your face and you realized, yep, it's time to have that conversation. I'm Shauna Compton Game. This is Millennial Money. And today we're demystifying the new marriage trend, the post-nup and talking about those ever popular prenups with attorney Jennifer Guimo and ask Shauna all about different types of investments. Millennial Money with Shauna Compton-Gain. It will expand your brain. So I hope you have your seatbelts fastened for this podcast episode. I am actually so excited to bring this episode to you to talk about these really controversial topics, pro snubs, prenups. All these things that we hear, maybe we hear our friends or someone in our family has one of these, but we're just like too afraid to ask the questions behind it. You know, what is it really? How does it work? Should I have that? Should I not have it? You know, all of those kinds of questions. And so I'm I'm really excited to dive into this episode. But before we do, we have a listener question from Janice. I hope I'm saying your name correctly. Janice says, hi, Shauna. I'm a 24-year-old lifelong learner. I currently invest heavily in a Roth in addition to my 403B. I have recently started using a brokerage account as well. Can you please explain the difference between an ETF versus a mutual fund versus index fund? Thanks so much. This is a great question, Janice, because no matter where you are in your investment uh Uh, range or vocabulary, there's a lot of confusion around these terms. And even when we think we understand them, then sometimes it's like a head scratcher again, like, wait a minute, what was that? Because it all sounds like Japanese, especially when you're starting out. But an ETF is just short for an exchange traded fund. And it really is just a basket of securities that you can buy or sell on a stock exchange. And they're traded like stock, which means that the price goes up all throughout the day. So the price is constantly fluctuating between the ETFs. And they've been around for, you know, not as long as mutual funds, but they're really popular because ETFs traditionally are low cost funds. It's one of the advantages of an ETF. And you may see a lot of companies like Betterment and Wealthfront, even if you use your own brokerage fund, that these types of companies use ETFs and recommend ETFs because they are such low cost funds. They're really popular, I would say, you know, outside of investing in your 401k, you're going to see a lot of emphasis on ETFs just because they are super, super low cost. And as we've talked about on this podcast, when you're investing, the objective, of course, is to pay as little for the fund as humanly possible and get as high of a return as humanly possible. And that's sort of the way you win with investing. And really, up until a few years ago, there wasn't a lot of talk around fees around investments. Whether we knew it or not, there were fees associated with all of these different types of funds But they weren't out in the open, so a lot of times I think people thought that they were making a lot more money in their portfolio than they were actually making because the fees were really dragging down their portfolio. So that's an ETF. A mutual fund, they're they're like a cousin to an ETF, and it's it's also like a basket or a pool. You often see it described as a pool of investments that brings together multiple stocks, bonds, and other securities all into one, like a little basket of goodies and. You know, 401ks is going to be the most frequent place that you see mutual funds. Usually when you start working for a company and you're able to invest in their 401k, they'll give you a list of, I don't know, 10, 15, 20, depends on the company, different mutual funds that you can select from to invest in. And there's all types of funds. There's tech funds, there's healthcare funds, there's international funds, there's emerging market funds, you name it, the U.S. stock funds, there's all sorts of different funds that you can choose from, and those different funds are then made up of uh, the different investments, and you can look when you're researching which mutual funds you want to select, you can look up all those different companies that are included in that mutual fund. And the idea behind the mutual fund is that if, let's say, you're in a tech fund, and I don't know, God forbid something happens with Google, and let's say Google's one of the stocks in that fund, something happens with Google, maybe there's a security breach or something like that, and the price tanks, the objective is that all the other funds in all the other, you know, companies' stocks in that particular mutual fund will help pull that price up. So it's unlike investing with a stock. You know, if you invested just in Google and something happened to Google, you would risk, Uh, losing a lot of your value in that stock. So hopefully that makes sense. And the mutual fund's a little bit different. So the price is only adjusted at the end of the day. And it's based on something called net asset value. You don't need to understand that all, you just need to know that the price only changes once a day at the end of the day. And there's usually a portfolio manager for each of these funds. And of course, these funds have fees as well, and you're also looking for low-cost funds if you're selecting between mutual funds. So an index fund is just a type of fund, really, that follows a particular stock market index. For instance, the S&P 500, it holds all the stocks or bonds that are in that particular index, right? So if we're looking at the S&P 500, that's a roster of the 500 largest U.S. companies with publicly traded shares. And each stock weight on the list is usually determined by its overall market value. So if you had an S&P 500 index fund, it would contain that roster of funds and the idea is that the index fund will mimic what is happening in that particular index. So, if you're watching, um, you know, some finance show throughout the day, and you see the S and P five hundred is up, the objective then is that the index fund will also be up for that day. So it, it kind of works in tandem with that particular index. So hopefully that helps. Uh, differentiate, I think is the best word I'm looking for here. Those different types of investments. We have our ETFs versus our mutual funds, right? Those are like cousins. And then we have our index fund, which is a type of fund. It could be a type of mutual fund um, that you can invest in. So they're all a little bit different there. I'm going to include a link in the show notes to Fidelity. And Fidelity actually has this awesome learning center where you can go in and you can learn about all of the different investment products. You can take a little mini course. So you really can break down each of these different uh, bits and pieces of the investments that maybe the bits and pieces that are a little bit challenging for you to understand. And there you can you know, get educated, as we say. It was a great, I went through it myself. I went through a lot of the courses, and I thought it was really easy to understand, really easily laid out, and great informative information. But great question, and I think that's a question, Janice, that a lot of people have, is wait a minute, what does all of this jargon mean? Do I even need to know all of this? Doesn't make sense to me. But You are a awesome investor. If you're 24 and you're already investing heavily and you're answering these questions and you already started using a brokerage account, like high five, like double high five to you. That is awesome. Keep up the hard work because you are going to thank yourself so many times in probably the next 20, 30 years when you look at your portfolio values, no matter what happened to the market, you're going to be so thankful that you started so early. So kudos to you for that. All right, so on to our topic for today. And like I said, I am actually so excited to talk about this very controversial topic because you know, we hear these words, prenup, and, and kind of the new trend word, postnup, and we think we know what they are. I mean, I think I think on surface, a lot of us know what they are, in particular, prenup. We've heard that a lot. And, you know, um, I had a lot of friends who got married who said, oh, I should have gotten a I I should get a prenup, or I should have gotten a prenup, or oh, my prenup had this in it, or my prenup had that in it. There's a lot of people that feel very strongly one way or another about prenups, and most certainly probably about postnups when you hear more about those. Um, I'm kind of in that camp, uh, just, just my personal opinion, and it might actually surprise you because through my first divorce, I literally was decimated. I, um, I gave up Honestly, every single asset, about the only asset that I retained were my clothes and my car, which I still had a loan on my car, so it wasn't really an asset, but I walked away from a house and from a lot of other things in that um in that divorce. It was not it was not pretty at all. It was not financially beneficial to me. I don't think divorce is financially beneficial to anyone, but I I do know some people who have come out a little bit unscathed, but I A lot of my female friends, ironically, have come out um, on the wrong side of coin, if you will, when it it comes to divorce. It's just ugly. It's not a good process. And so I understand the theory behind prenups. You know, a document there, an agreement that you set out before you get married that dictates what's going to happen to your finances if you get divorced. So in theory, I understand it, of course. And when I got married again, a lot of people were surprised that I decided not to have a prenup but honestly, I was still rebuilding I was still completely in the rebuilding stage, and there was nothing really to put in a prenup and besides the fact I just you know i just i I'm a believer in people, maybe maybe that's a naive statement, but um. You know, I I just believe that when you come together and you're married, however the chips may fall, they fall, good, bad, whatever in between. And so I'm actually not a personal fan of prenups, but I do think that it's really important to learn about prenups. I actually didn't know a lot about postnups until this podcast interview. So, you know, I feel like I got educated as well. I think it's good to know about these. And then I think, there might be a lot of you listening to this podcast where you're wanting to have that conversation with your future spouse about a prenup or maybe even about a postnup, and you just have absolutely no idea how to bring up this topic, how to talk about such a super sensitive topic. And so I was so overjoyed to have Jennifer Gimo join me on this episode. She's a Chicago-based attorney. And she really helped break down the differences between the prenup and the pro and you know, some strategies, some suggestions for how in the world do we enter into those super, super, super tough conversations. I'm gonna be real with you. Identity theft is on the rise, and you do not want to wake up one morning and discover that your bank account has been emptied, or you're overdue on credit cards you never even applied for. We talk about this often on the podcast, but you don't realize how much of your information The only way you get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash ETM and enter code ETM at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash ETM. Go to joindeleteme.com slash ETM and use code ETM for 20% off. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. And now listeners of this show get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash etm. That's monarchmone dot com slash etm for your extended 30-day free trial. So Jennifer, I am so excited to have you on the podcast. I think this is going to be such a great episode. We've not... Done anything like this before, and I know the listeners are really going to get excited about this. But before we kind of dive into the prenup, pro- postnup topic, I wanted to talk a little bit about you, about your background. You are certainly an overachiever. You have so many different, um, you know, awesome things that you've done in your past. But I think when it comes to law and the different types of law, so many people get confused. And I know you're a family law attorney. I was wondering if you could just walk us through, you know, what does that mean? And tell me a little bit about your journey actually into law. Oh, yeah. Thank you, by the way, for having me. I really appreciate the
1: opportunity to talk to you today about what I consider to be a pretty exciting and interesting topic. Um, yeah, So, so in terms of my background and experience, Um, I kind of come from an accounting background and Right out of college, I was um, in various sort of accounting uh, roles in corporate um, uh, business in a business environment uh, corporate departments and you know I just found that the work was was okay, but I just was missing and I was lacking um, that person to person problem solving that I really you know enjoy doing and and helping people at a more personal level so I decided to go to law school a few years after college um, while I was working full time and and get my law degree then and you know, I started to get interested in family law in school and um, didn't really um, realize how, how well suited and how much I loved the practice until I had been practicing for a couple of years. So, you know, I got a little bit of experience, um, you know, in, in the estate planning side of things. Um, it, you know, while I was in law school, and then um, had a job at a boutique family law firm out of school. But then, when I'm out on my own, and you know, it was really, you know, after I had been practicing for for a little bit, that I really saw that the practice of family law has just allowed me to have that person-to-person connection that I was so craving in my former career as just an accountant in, you know, in business setting. But um, that also allowed me to use my accounting skills. And I, so I, I didn't have to give up my accounting that I loved. Um, so I get kind of all the best of, of all worlds. So, you know, when, I, you know, we talk about family law, what does that mean? You know, my practice is, you know, a full kind of service family practice. And, you know, the, the practice of family law, you know, as it's sort of, I guess, defined generally is, you know, helping families through through such things as divorce, custody, um, you know, prenups and post-nups and, uh, you know, anything that affects, you know, the family in any in any way. Um, you know, the other side of my practice is estate planning, which again, you know, affects families more in a transactional sense, right? We're setting up plans so that families can feel secure and safe knowing that everything is taken care of in the event of one or, or both, you know, parents' deaths, um, kids are taken care of and, and all of the estate will be wound up, you know, Cleanly and and with as many with as few costs um, having to be incurred as possible. So my my practice kind of you know it it, it it's it's a, it's divided, but you know it, all all of my practice areas kind of affect families at either the litigation level or in the transactional sense. And certainly pre- prenups and
0: postnups fall right in there. <laughs> yeah, all the all the tough subjects, right? <laughs>
1: yeah, right. Well, you know, I I don't consider them tough, but I know that. They can be overwhelming to anyone who hasn't been involved in the process of maybe setting one of these up. I certainly can see it from that perspective. Um, but I try to make the process as as easy and not intimidating as possible
0: and do you find you know you obviously are in intimate settings with with mainly couples you know trying to make tough decisions? Do you find mm-hmm. yourself getting, you know, involved in, in kind of their own story? Or like how do you keep that that separate as a family law attorney? Well, you know, I think you would be really remiss if you weren't at some level
1: identifying and and getting, you know, um, close to your clients in the sense that, you know, you're kind of going through a journey with them. And so, sure. so I think, you know, you, there is a little bit of that. But, you know, ultimately, at the end of my day, I know that, like, I've got to keep things you know, professional and I've got to, you know, make sure that I am providing what I need to provide, which is adequate counsel and, you know, taking the stress off their plate. And so we can't get, you know, I can't get too inter- intermeshed with their, you know, all the emotional stuff. But what what I do is I do sit and listen and I do um, counsel them, you know, through what, you know, typically can be one of the hardest times in their life if they're going through a d- divorce. Certainly that's, that's up there with death um, yes. in terms of, of difficulty to get through. So I definitely see that, I hear it, but my job is to keep um, you know everything moving towards the goals, goals and directions that my client and I have set. And so I, I keep my eye on that while providing as much counsel as I can and always, you know, if there's a need for maybe some additional counseling that I think is outside of my realm, you know, certainly I have, you know, a good um, group of professionals in that arena who can assist with, with more of that.
0: Yeah, I, li- I like that a lot, because I could imagine mm-hmm. that there are some stories that are that are, you know, tug on the heartstrings. And, uh, yeah, you know, I think every every person's at a different emotional place, you know, particularly when they mm-hmm. come to an attorney about this. And, you yeah. know, we we've we've obviously all of us have heard whether we understand exactly what it is, we've heard the word prenup, but postnup, I think mm-hmm. is a bit, it's a bit of a foreign concept. Can you walk mm-hmm. us through, you know, like what is the difference between those two, other than obviously pre and post? And right, you know, what right, are right. what are some of the things mm-hmm. that that people um, need to know about those differences?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, like you like you alluded to, there's there's the obvious difference between a prenup and a postnup. A prenup. It's signed before a wedding. So before you even walk down the aisle, this thing has been negotiated and drafted and executed and it's been kind of put away. Um, so it's done. It's in, it's in place. And, you know, the terms of a prenup actually usually state that it won't become effective until, you know, the actual wedding occurs. Mm-hmm. So once that wedding occurs, now this prenup that has been drafted and executed is, is, is set. It is, is valid. It is, you know, it is uh, legally enforceable at that point. Um, that's one major difference. The uh, One of the other major differences is, you know, what, what do parties have to do to make these things valid? And I don't want to get into a lot of technical, you know, uh, yes. legal jargon <laughs> yeah, because I certainly don't want to bore, bore anyone with that, but you know, certain things uh, have to happen with each type of agreement to make sure it's valid and enforceable. So I can walk maybe through what that looks like for a prenup. And then we can walk through what that looks like. Or, yeah, for postnup. And I just want to throw out there as a, you know, kind of a disclaimer that I'm an Illinois attorney, which means I'm licensed to practice law in Illinois. We are a separate property state. Our laws on prenups and postnups quite quite possibly will vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And then obviously, you know, internationally, there there could be just completely different rules and laws on this. So my perspective, you know, I, I, is basically from an Illinois attorney's standpoint and, and based on Illinois statute and case law. So I just wanted to make that really clear. Um, so, you know, in terms of a prenup, um, the prenup will be typically found valid if there are several factors that have been adhered to in the process of, of negotiating and executing this prenup. So the first one is that it has to be done and it has to be signed well in advance of the wedding. So, you know, you hear these stories about, you know, the, the eve of the wedding, you know, parties are still negotiating and trying to work out these details. Well, you know, the the party that maybe, you know, is, to receive the, the 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 lesser of the property under this prenup or the the worst deal, could use that fact. Uh, you know, if they ever wanted to invalidate the prenup, they could say they felt pressured, coerced into signing this, and it was right before the wedding, and they felt they had no other options. So, so one thing that I that I tell my clients and counsel them on is what what the law here in Illinois kind of you know shows make could potentially lead to the finding of, of a prenup to be invalid. And that's one of them. So, so I always say, let's, let's make sure we have it done in well in advance of the wedding and what's well in advance. It depends exactly. on the facts and circumstances. We won't go into all that, but you know, it, it's, <laughs> the The night before is not well in advance. <laughs> we'll, I will say that. So, or you know, the, the the rehearsal dinner. I've heard of those. You know, they you know they're still working oh, no. out and they're trying to have their rehearsal dinner. And, you know, so that again, we don't want it to be this last minute. Anyone's feeling pressured or coerced. Okay, so that's and one quick aspect. question.
0: Quick question before you before yeah. you go further. You know, you mentioned that you know usually the party who feels like they're not or they're they're practically not getting as much you know from the mm-hmm. prenup. Is it mm-hmm. always a case where one person's, you know, in the disadvantage and one is in the advantage, or is that just purely case by case? Well, it's case by case, but, you know, you you have situations where
1: one party just clearly has a lot more, um, they're coming to a situation with a lot more, and that's why this prenup is, is being um, done. And, you know, you, you certainly can have situations where parties are coming into the marriage with equal, you know, assets that they want to protect, but... In those cases where one is coming in with a you know clear advantage in that their net estate is far greater than the the person who they're marrying, the person with the lesser estate could feel like, you know, they may want to find this prenup to be invalid at some point if they feel over time that they just, you know, they they didn't feel it was overall fair. So you, you can yeah yeah. Um, so the, 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 the next factor is there has to be a full and frank disclosure of assets and income before a prenup would be, you know, absolutely found valid. So if, you know, the parties, and this is, again, we're talking about Illinois law and what Illinois case law has, has held in terms of what, the you know, the court can look at and in, 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 in deciding whether or not to invalidate a prenup. So if there's a full and frank disclosure by both parties of all of their assets and debts that they own and that they have, that they're indebted to prior to the marriage, and there it doesn't look like anything was hidden or not disclosed. Then, then that's one factor that that, that will probably, you know, be in the in, on the side of the party who's looking to, you know, enforce this agreement. So, you know, that's an important aspect. You can't just, you know, present an agreement to a fiance and say, you know, you, you know what I make, you know what I have. I'm, I, we're not going to go through that whole. You know, process of listing it all out, but here sign this and say that you'll you agree not to not to you know ever ask for any of that money if we were to get divorced or any you know any it increases in those assets or any anything that might come to you by virtue of our marriage. So it's really important that there's a full and frank and complete disclosure of assets and income, and so that each party knows what they're
0: getting themselves into and what they're giving up potentially when they sign. I think that's a great point because you know even just in relationships, you know, without a prenup or a postnup, there's always something that especially in, in the beginning that that people try to hide, whether it's a good thing or a not a good thing, you know, and I think I'm just a huge proponent of the full disclosure, you know, I mean, you got to know the person that you're marrying, uh, you know, the good, the bad, you know, and all of the in between. So I think that's a really good I, I like, I like to hear that 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 actually is a requirement. Right. And I think transparency is, is such a good thing anyway. You're, 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 you're going to be inter- intermeshed with this person and,
1: you know, spend your lives together. Whether or not you commingle your accounts and assets, you sh- I mean, there should be transparency in terms of what this person has, um, what you have. It's just, it's, I think it's just good for the relationship as well. So, you know, it, exactly. So it, it's got to be there or there could be grounds to invalidate the prenup ultimately. So... Yeah, gotta do it. <laughs> no so if somebody
0: it. if somebody found if somebody had a prenup and they found out mm-hmm. that there was something that wasn't disclosed, you know, that could right. potentially be grounds for them to say, hey, wait a minute, you know, you didn't tell me about X, Y, or Z or whatever that may be.
1: Right. Because the argument is that party may have negotiated differently and asked for something different or something mm-hmm. more had they known the full scope of what was there. So, yeah. you know, that's that's kind of where that what where that plays into um the final you know uh, requirement that really should should be present to make this thing as airtight as possible is that both parties should be represented by counsel so if you have one party who's got an attorney and the other one doesn't then you know, there could be an argument by that party who wasn't represented that they just didn't know what they were signing. They just did not understand the ramifications of what they've given up. And so coming into a situation years down the road when there might be a divorce um, filed, they could say, well, look, I, you know, I, do, I, I want to, you know, I, I want to invalidate this thing. I didn't understand at the time I, what I was signing. I didn't have an attorney and I, I, I didn't know I had, I should have had one. Um, now, there are certain ways that you can, you know, if one party party just refuses to get an attorney, then maybe you, you can really make sure that the agreement fully says that they had plenty of opportunity, they were advised to get counsel, despite all the opportunity and despite the, the advice they, they elected to proceed pro se. However, it, it just is one factor that the, the, the court can look at. So it's highly advisable that both parties are represented by counsel in the negotiation and signing of this agreement.
0: And separate counsel, correct? Or the same counsel? That's right. No. So, so, you know, I, there are situations, you know, where perhaps it might be
1: um, beneficial to have the same attorney, but a prenup or postnup is so such a, of the nature that it's the two parties are so, um, you know, adversarial, and there's no way you could advocate for both. So it, it just is not a waivable conflict of interest. So if an attorney is saying, yeah, I can represent you both, it's not a problem, I, I, you know, I would, I would caution that that, that it really should, should never be one council, and and I don't, I think that would be grounds for finding this invalid, quite frankly. So. You know, I agree. Separate council. Yeah. It is just, you know, it's, it's, you know, everybody's got their own person advising them on what's in their best interest. I don't see how one council could do that for two poun- parties who are diametrically opposed. It just, it just doesn't work that way. Yeah.
0: <laughs> right. Exactly. I yeah. hear you. So we're, we're seeing yeah. this trend towards post You know, mm-hmm. what is it about post Why, why is this trend happening? You know, I, I, I think that, you
1: know, it just comes down to people are just understanding more that they, they have rights that they are accruing during marriage. Maybe it's better. Education is better. There's more things out there to educate. Maybe like, you know, for instance, what you all do in, in putting information out there. And so it's more readily available. So people understand that, Hey, you know, if I'm not happy in a marriage or I feel like I'm giving up something and I'm not getting anything in return, you know, then, you know, maybe I, maybe I'm a candidate for, for, for the post-nup and, and maybe it's just more knowledge about that, that this exists. And it's a, it's a potential document that, that parties can um, sign even after the marriage and after the wedding that would preserve rights that are important to, to them. So I think education and then, you know, um yeah, but I, you know, if I had to look at post and prenups, prenups are by far the more common, more prevalent situation. post are, are, I think are still less common overall, but but they are gaining in in in, um, in just you know momentum given the given the I think the access to knowledge base and education now days
0: And with the postnups, do they have mm-hmm. you know the same kind of requirements that the prenup has to make them valid, or or how do those work? Well, so it, so it's a little bit different in terms of
1: I mean there you still needs to really be full disclosures. Um, although at that point they're already married and there might be um, a lot of personal knowledge about what's there for each side, but yet definitely full disclosures, um, definitely represented by separate counsel. But now you you know we've eliminated that need to have it well in advance of the wedding because we're at, and we're now post wedding we're now after the wedding. But the problem becomes with post nups, and and again I'm speaking um, about Illinois law and how these work in Illinois is that what the parties need to give up in order to have this be valid is different than what they need to give up, you know, or the consideration given for a prenup to be valid. So let me give you a couple examples to kind of clarify. So in a post-nup situation, you could have a post-nup executed by the parties. If one of them files for divorce and then after the divorce is filed, they agree not to pursue the divorce because the other spouse has offered them something. It's usually monetarily, um, as in for, you know, uh, dismissing the divorce action. That's one scenario where I, I see uh, post-nups coming into play. So, so it's, the the one party uh, agreeing to forego the continuation of the divorce proceedings because the other has promised them something um monetarily like i said usually um and it's in writing and it's signed okay so that's that's one scenario so both parties are giving up something. One is giving up the ability to move forward on the divorce. The other is um, giving up a, you know, financial benefit to that party, which they may not otherwise have had to do um, that they are voluntarily doing. So that's one scenario. And then, you know, another example would be you've got two two spouses. One is looking, you know, one is um, looking to potentially stop working um, and uh, giving up, maybe, uh, you know, time in their field, which may be a detriment to them if they ever try to go back into that field. So they may be making a very nice salary and then take they're going to take time off, perhaps, to stay at home with kids. And the parties agree to this. But the, power, the spouse that's giving up their career, at least for a time, it feels uncomfortable that, you know, well, what if we divorce, you know, down the road and, you know, and I don't have a retirement account, you know, that's, um, you know, been funded and I don't have... You know assurances that I would get maintenance to get back on my feet these kinds of things so so again, in this scenario, they're not really divorcing, but one spouse is giving up something the the ability to continue on with a career and 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 continue to fund retirement accounts and be financially stable on their own and the other spouse you know um, you know obviously would be um, you know, then giving up something monetarily and saying, look, you know, if you agree to do this, we'll put it in a post-nup and, you know, uh, you know I'll, you'll know, be taken care of either through uh, financial incentives or, or maintenance or something to that effect. So that's another example of why a post-nup could come into play. So, so it's a different analysis. A prenup is valid just by virtue of, you know, moving forward with the wedding. Um, but a post is not going to be found valid if two parties just say, hey, you pay me this, and I'll sign this. There has to be more. like there has to be more things. Each side has to be giving up something, but those are two of the uh, common examples that I see here and where I practice here in Illinois where, you know, it, it's deemed that both parties have given adequate consideration for the agreement, but it, it is, you know, and I think the takeaway, too, is that this is such a case-by-case scenario and factual analysis, that there's no bright line rule, there's no general, anything that, you know, I could tell you that works across the board, it just really would depend on that, those facts and circumstances for those parties and whether or not, you know, an attorney in the family law arena consulted would, would say, hey, yeah, I think this would hold up. I think this would be, be valid. Um,
0: and a post a postnup could be at, at any particular point in time after you get married, right? There's not a, a set period of time. In Illinois, we have
1: nothing, you know, statutorily that says a postnup has to be, you know, drafted and um, executed at, at any particular point in time. Just after the the, the marriage, basically, w- it, it is when it, it is called a postnup. So yeah, there's no Got timeline it. or time frame. It's more an analysis of. What's happening with the parties? What are they both giving up to in, enter and engage with, into this agreement? Have they been adequately counseled and advised? And have there been full disclosures? Um, those are more more the, more the sticking points that a court will want to look at. Down the road. And I
0: imagine, so, yeah. you know, obviously one of the reasons why you need an attorney, whether you're going prenup or postnup, is mm-hmm. because each of these, I would imagine, almost like a financial plan is... Completely different, you know. They're almost their own original document in terms of what are the conditions that are in these documents. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, ultimately,
1: I think a prenup and a postnup are both going to address very similar things. What happens if the party's divorce? What happens with all the assets? What happens with all the debts? Is is one spouse going to be getting any sort of maintenance payments? um ultimately i think both both agreements are going to be addressing similar things um but it just comes down to the timing when when they're drafted and for what purpose you know is it is it being drafted to induce the other you know to en- enter into a marriage or is it being drafted to you know, um, solve another issue that's arisen after the marriage. It's so yeah, but but a lot of the same things will be addressed in both. And I will say, in, you know, at least in Illinois, I would imagine it's similar and across other states. You can't deal with child-related issues in a prenup or postnup. So it's you're not going to figure out who gets custody, who gets child support, who's paying for what with respect to the kids. That that all kind of stays out. This is just the the financial you know uh, aspects of the case other than child related um, so how the how the marital state will be distributed what is the marital state what does it consist of and you know whether or not someone's going to be getting maintenance and for how long and how much those sort of things will be will be identified
0: and is there you know a a certain benchmark I imagine the answer is no but so many couples I know are thinking about prenup maybe even postnup. But they're trying to figure out, is there a, like a monetary benchmark or something that, that would, that would sort of, you know, flip the switch of like, okay, yes, we should get a prenup. Or is that just completely individual or subjective up to the couple as to, you know, what they feel is, is valuable that they want to protect in the prenup or postnub? Yeah, that's a really good
1: question and a really interesting question. And, you know, I, I have a similar answer for, for you with respect to the prenups and postnups as I do with my estate planning clients, and that is money aside and what you own and what you want to protect aside, do you want to have it be a sort of clean, predictable procedure if you have to go through a divorce? Do you want the the property settlement and the other issues related to the divorce proceeding to be spelled out ahead of time so everyone knows what to expect? Or are you fine with kind of just, you know, seeing how it plays out if and when it happens? So if your goal is that, you know, predictability and getting things agreed to ahead of time so that when this highly emotionally charged time comes around, things are already set in place, then it doesn't matter if you have $500 or $5 million. I think that if the goal is streamlining of a, a, what can be a very, very troublesome and, and stressful process. If that's a goal, then it doesn't matter. So I would say, you know, I, I first get my client's goals. And a lot of times it's, it's predictability and making sure that there is a timeline and a um, plan for how this will flesh out if it does go down that road at some point. So, um, yeah, it just depends on what those yeah what those goals are.
0: Okay, last question. I feel like I could ask you a million questions, but last question, you know, you see a ton of couples come through your door, uh, you know, whether it's prenup, posnup, uh even the divorce topic, you know, what, what is advice that you can give some of the listeners who are feeling uncomfortable about how in the world do they bring the pre or pro topic up to their significant other? I mean, is there a lot of cases where there's one spouse that's obviously more willing and one that is just totally against this? Or what kind of advice would you give to someone who's kind of in that, that really scared place? Yeah. Oh my goodness. You know, it's so, um, depends on the, the relationship and
1: whether these parties are generally open and honest with each other. Obviously, in those circumstances, the pre postnup talk is going to be much more palatable to the party who's, you know, being told, you know, hey, I, I, I want to talk about this. I want to I potentially put one of these agreements together versus a couple that they really don't, you know, talk about financial stuff. They really don't have a real open and honest communication. And I would say for the first couple, you know, it's, it's just as easy as, Hey, you know, let's, let's, let's talk about, and I don't even know if I would say prenup or post-nup in the conversation. I would say, Hey, can we talk about finances and what, what concerns me and start the conversation with that Um, with the, with the the couple that doesn't have this full and open and honest kind of communication style, I would say maybe schedule, um, you know, some therapy sessions with a third party and say, you know, there's something I'd like to bring up and talk to you about, but I feel like we'd better assist it if we did it with a therapist so that, you know, you, you know, I, you don't feel like I'm saying, you know, the wrong thing and I don't feel like I'm saying the wrong thing and we can really get through this conversation together. Um, so th- that's kind of what, you know, I, I would recommend, um, you know, if there, if there's a party that just won't talk about it at all, then I think, you know, the one that's asking you for the prenup or post, or, or, or well, if it's a prenup, they need to decide if this is a relationship that's that's a long-term relationship. And if that makes sense, because over the years of marriage, obviously there's going to be lots of need to communicate and lots of need to talk about stuff that isn't fun. But, you know, that, you know, it, I think it could be a, you know, sort of a precursor, if you will, um, as to whether or not the relationship is going to sustain, you know, a long-term marriage. So,
0: that is such a great point. I I love mm-hmm. that. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that, that, like, that point needs an exclamation point because you're yeah, right. I mean, yeah. there's so many difficult things that you're mm-hmm. going to go through in a marriage. And you can't foresee that, you know, when you're thinking mm-hmm. about your wedding day and how amazing that's going to be. But mm-hmm. all of right. us in every relationship, you know, we walk through tough stuff and you have to be mm-hmm. able to have this, this transparency about you. And, you know, it starts, I think, with talking about hard stuff like money. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, money is, you know, it's so important to
1: everyone and protecting it and, you know, making sure that we're all taken care of. And once you become one economic unit, once you're married, I mean, this, now you really need to be on the same team. So, um, you know, as much as the couples can do ahead of time to, to, to build that foundation for communications is always advised.
0: Awesome. This has been so informative. I love this episode. Uh, I love the conversation and all of your amazing information that you provided. Tell the listeners where they can find out a little bit more about you if they're interested in learning more about this subject or you know, are in the state of Illinois and actually want to connect with you. Yeah, that would be great. And again, thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you as well. Um, so, in
1: terms of contact information, um, I can be found online. My law office website is www.gqlawoffice.com, so they can find um, you know information about myself, my practice, some some interesting blog articles we've definitely written on prenups, postnups. And, you know, if they'd like to reach out to me further, they can get my email and phone number there on the website as well.
0: So hopefully you learned something. Uh, Again, if you're thinking about a prenup or even a postnup now after learning exactly what that is, hopefully this conversation has given you some sort of inspiration to be able to have those tough conversations and to be able to find a way through it. Because, I think at all costs, what you're always trying to avoid is divorce. And if I was to give any new couple advice who's maybe trying to sift through these tough questions, or maybe you're already married and you're having a difficult go around in the marriage, you know, the divorce word is a really big word. And I think that if you've not been through a divorce, you tend to not think that that word has much weight. But it really does. It's a really tough word. And I think that when you start throwing that around in a relationship in a really negative way, it can have such detrimental effect on the marriage. And so if I was to give any couple, new couple advice, it would be don't use that word. Don't use that word as a threat or anything like that until, you know, you're actually in that particular situation. And You know, I think after hearing Jennifer's conversation, maybe even thinking about prenups and postnups, in a different way, maybe approaching those conversations in a different way so that it's not just like, okay, well, we're probably going to get divorced someday, so we should have these documents, but coming out at it a different, from a different way of, you know, we're in this marriage, it is a legal and financial relationship now, and we just want to be prepared for the future. Maybe I think changing the tone changes a little bit of the conversation and the stigma and the fear around things like prenups and postnups. As always, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Shauna Game. And if you love this podcast, do me a favor, share it with your friends, shout it out on social media, help us to keep growing so we can keep bringing you awesome topics and help you to be continued to be a superstar with your finances. <laughs>